Glad that you could be with us this morning as we take a moment now or a couple of moments and reflect upon um, the Scriptures. We are glad that you are here wherever you are in your journey of life and faith. We thank you for coming. If you are new to us, we have uh, been looking at the book of Exodus and we will continue to do that today as we look at the Ten Commandments and the final six of the ten. So we are going to read from Exodus 20 this morning. And so now to help us with the reading of that, Iwan. The scripture passage today comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 to 21. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, we are in our second half of this seminal teaching of God and Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus chapter 20. I want you to hear now the opening words of that seminal and famous book, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. It opens this way. God has called every Christian to a holy life. There are no exceptions to this call. Every Christian of every nation, whether rich or poor, learned or unlearned, influential or totally unknown, is called to be holy. These are true words. And those words and that attitude are embedded in the words we are about to study before us. <clears throat> Even if you are not a Christian, and we are glad you are here if you are not, I would say you are probably sympathetic to these words which call Christians to be holy, loving, and caring. Every Torontonian I know even those who are not Christians, still wishes and expects Christians to act this way. So wherever we are in our journey of faith, these words resonate. And they are part, as we saw last week, of the ten words of God, the ten commandments given to Israel on Mount Sinai. If you were here last week, we mentioned that here on Mount Sinai, God is effecting a covenant ceremony akin to marriage with His people. God is covenanting to be our God and to make us His people, actually to make us His children as well as His bride. 
This is a marriage ceremony. God has already proven his love and fidelity to Israel. As you know, he has passed over them in the great plague of the death of the firstborn in Egypt, and then he has released them from the dominion of Egyptian authority by passing them through the Red Sea to freedom. Now, Christians, those of you with some theological insights, will recognize what the Christians for centuries have recognized that there are great New Testament parallels in these activities. The New Testament says that we have gone through a kind of Passover, that Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. And of course, here in the Red Sea, I mean, sorry, in the Red Sea, where the God delivered them out of Egyptian control by parting the Red Sea, a place that seemed to be the place of death for them, we see resonance with Jesus' resurrection where he rose from death, broke its power, eliminated its ability to enslave us, so so, so death, instead of becoming a final resting place, became a doorway to deliverance. The Red Sea points to the resurrection. And now here, this marriage ceremony is where God, having taken his people out of Egypt, the exodus, comes to them as God did in Jesus, risen from the dead, coming to us, having created the greatest final exodus, exodus from slavery to sin and death, comes and says, I want you to be my beloved. This is the central story of this passage and the central story of the gospel we believe. And Christians, we, the new Israel of God, the people of God, heirs of this marriage ceremony, therefore heirs of these covenant vows, with that historical backdrop and understanding, need to understand the meaning of what we're covenanting to. And we will see here in these six commands three general callings we are invited to. Firstly, we are invited, called to image God in our family relationships. Secondly, we are invited to imitate God in our relationships with neighbors. And thirdly, we are called to invite God into the deepest relationships of our heart. To imitate Him, uh, sorry, to image Him, to imitate Him, and to invite Him. Firstly, let us image God in our family relationships. If you look at this list, you will see uh, a couple of oddities. Firstly, the, and this is key to the whole text, by the way, the fifth command that starts it off has a promise. And secondly, it doesn't say don't. It says do. The fifth command is kind of different from six, seven, eight, and nine. It's not you shall not, it's you shall honor your father and mother. And then there's a promise. So, the fifth command is different from the rest. And then the final command, do not covet, is different seemingly from all of them. Because it's not an external behavior. It's an internal desire that you are called, you're commanded to abstain from. It alone of, well, actually not alone, Remember the first, 
the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. It is actually attitudinal. The last command, you shall not covet, it is attitudinal. The other eight, they're behaviors. Now let's look at the first and the last. You shall not have any other gods before me, no idols, and you shall not covet. And listen to how the New Testament puts those two ideas together. In Colossians 3, verse 5, this is what Paul says, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and coveting, which is idolatry. Coveting and idolatry are the same thing. I submit to you that these are bookends because the 10 words are one sandwich, one meal of God revealing his character and his covenant desire for us. Now, given that that is true, this fifth command that starts us here is very different because it's a positive, not a negative, and it has a promise. It has a promise that says that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is living you. Now, if you're an average Torontonian, you're thinking, oh, well, we'll get to live long. It has nothing to do with your physical age. What it has to do with is how long the people of God will be blessed by the God of the people by being able to remain in the land that he has given them. This is a call of national Israel, the people of God, to obey him in their national way that they treat each other so that they may not be kicked out of the land that is holy. This is a command about honoring your actual parents It is a command about having a general posture and pattern of obeying your parents as a minor and honoring them when you reach maturity. We will not miss that. It does have that command, but we need to probe deeper than that because embedded in here is something for the nation of Israel, therefore for the people of God, you and I. Scholars like Alec Machir, and I agree with him, think that this is a singular call to honor parents that has a face and a deeper meaning. Let's look at the face of it. In our day and in our culture, the family, as described and endorsed by the gospel, is being challenged and attacked. We can see that quite clearly. We are redefining what family means in our culture all the time. So we need to say, as the church, that parents are indeed, as the Bible says, the protectors and providers, the teachers and trainers of their kids. They are the proper authority over their children. God has assigned that. He has not assigned that to anybody else. It may take a village to raise a child, but the village goes to the parents. And the state does not have primary authority over our families. The parents do. Central to this command is the underlying gospel structure that parents govern their households. Children, honor your parents. Honor that authority. Now, Already someone is writing in the Q&A, the question that comes up every single time we use the word parents, what about abuse? Of course, if your parents are abusive and you do not fulfill their gospel responsibilities to love and nurture you in the Lord, then different rules apply. But generally, exceptions don't make the rules. Generally, 
what God is saying is that parents, you are called to lovingly steward and shepherd your children, and children, you are called to honor your parents. When you are under the age of maturity, that means to listen to them, that means to obey them, that means to consider what they have to say and treat them with respect. When you are over the age of maturity, particularly when you start your own family, honoring doesn't mean obeying. Some cultures think that you are to obey your parents no matter what stage of life. That's not the biblical call, but you are to honor them at every stage. Listen to them, care for them. Honor them. Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord. That's people under the age of maturity. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And it quotes this verse, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Even Ephesians notes the singularity of this command. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There it is. Now, Though this command is singular and somewhat separate from the other ones, it begins the second table where our vows to God are about how we treat each other. This tells us that our fundamental identity is familial. We image God in the way we relate to each other because we relate to God as father and children. God is becoming at the same moment our bridegroom and asking us to image him as our father. So we structure our whole society with loving parents and responsive honoring children to imitate and image our relationship to God. And now let's go deeper. Because the family in the gospel is the people who believe in Jesus. We are the family, the most fundamental family, the most eternal family the most foundational family. And so now let's look at the church for a moment and see how it is embedded within these words. Paul, when describing what elders should be required or what qualifications give to them, says they should be the husband of one wife. They should be faithful in their familial relationships. And they should, and I'll quote now Ephesians 3, 4, he must manage his household well with all dignity keeping his children in order or submissive. How, if someone does not know how to manage their own household, how will they care for God's church? You see, the church is a family. It's structured that way. This is the consistent message. So we image God by how we prioritize and how we conduct our family lives. Men and women, your family comes before your job, your reputation, your financial success, your pleasure, your own self-actualization. Your primary calling is to your family. My primary calling as a child of God, as his child, is to be a good child of my parents, to be a good husband to my wife, a good father to any children God gives me. By doing these things, I honor him and fulfill my covenant vows. My vocation, my bucket list, my leisure activities, they're servants of that primary familial imaging calling. And when I see my identity primarily that way, called to honor God by fulfilling my family callings, it helps me to order my life in a way that honors Him. 
But now let us push this one step deeper. Family is not only the central building block of culture, it is the foundation stone of the church. We are a surpassing spiritual family and therefore I am called to my family obligations to you, you to me, and us to each other. Listen to Jesus. He said, by this all people will know that you, us, are my disciples if you have love one for another. Look how he conflates the two. On the cross, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, this is John 19, 26, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He was probably talking to John the apostle. Then he said to the apostle, behold your mother. This is not a familial relationship in blood, but in the family of God they become actually, John is now going to make her, as it were, part of his family. He takes her into his own home. We honor our parents. We honor our parents in the Lord. Shepherd your children. Shepherd the children of the church. We show the world a living image of God because this is the central familial way that God has ordered both human culture and the structure of the church. So implications, if you're a physical child, and you all are, honor your parents. Sometimes that means confronting them. If your parents have been abusive, it may be that they need to be confronted that they may repent. If they have been neglectful, again, it may need that they need to be exhorted, encouraged, and confronted that they repent. But if they have done well, honor them. Let them know. Spiritual children, and you are all spiritual children of God, honor your Father by loving each other. Love those who are of a different age category. Than you, a different socioeconomic category, a different ability and disability category, a different ethnicity than you. No room, no room in the family of God for divisions on race, no matter how subtle we may make them. Divisions on ethnicity, no matter how invisible we think we have made them. Ageism, sexism, differences in class or financial ability. We are called to love one another unconditionally. We honor our Heavenly Father by honoring our family relationships both inside the church and inside the family. We image God in our family life. Second point, we imitate God in our neighbor life. And here I will encompass the four quick ones, the terse ones. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness. These are stripped down commands, but if the Ten Commandments are what we think they are, if we think they're this whole theological sandwich, they're meant to be read expansively. In other words, each command would be more like a planet with its atmosphere around it. There's more to it than the, than the mere prohibition. Each could easily actually be a sermon unto itself in the Reformed tradition, which I and you inhabit. Each one of these is usually its own sermon to tease out all of the implications we don't have the time. Advent is upon us. So I will quickly give a few for you to chase down at your leisure or in your small groups. Firstly, you shall not murder. The Hebrew word for murder here, one of the many Hebrew words for to kill, means unlawfully cause their death. 
To put someone to death who's not done something to deserve that death is what is in view. It doesn't apply to every single manner of people dying, but what we would call deliberate causing of unlawful death, which would include negligence, manslaughter, etc. Here's the point for us today that we do need to look at. The God who created us is anti-death and therefore pro-life. Death is the result of the curse. It's the result of human sin. God made us in his image, originally designed us to live immortally. So great is our original and inherent dignity as image bearers of him. That image, men and women, is to be protected even from the earliest stages of human life. Innocent lives are meant to be preserved, protected, and nurtured. Within this command, Christians have traditionally seen prohibitions against suicide and against abortion. These are two hot topics today. We will talk more deeply about them in the new year when we have seminars about this issue. But we need to say that we as a church stand unashamedly with the historic Christian tradition in terms of defending life, life in the womb, life in the hospital room, life into the tomb. The gospel calls death the enemy of humanity, the result of the rebellion of us against God and the ensuing ruin that came into the natural world. But we, we should plead for, live for, care for, and nurture life. That means, by the way, not just being pro-life in our legal advocacy, but pro-life in trying to stamp out the root causes that make people want to end life want to have abortion or end lives early. That's why things like the Pregnancy Care Center are so vital to the Christian witness. We want to care for people and care for life all throughout the spectrum. Let us be that kind of community that loves people from the womb to the tomb and every moment in between in every life circumstance. Let us be a caring community that says, we love life and we will help you. Implications. Christians, we should defend life, we should value life, we should be pro-life in all the ways that we treat each other and the way we treat other people in our culture. Let us be that kind of community, not to measure people instrumentally, i.e., what value do you give to society now, but intrinsically, we value you because the image of God is in you and we love him. And we are betrothed to him, and therefore we love the him that is embedded in you. Christians should be free to persuade the culture to value life as God values life. We should be willing to and free to advocate for these values. But we should also be a place of refuge and grace for those who struggled to value life in their history. People who may have had lives ended and who struggle with shame and guilt and want to repent should find in the church a place, a place of grace and forgiveness and restoration. Most importantly, Grace Toronto, these vows are the vows we make to God as his bride to show our love to him and to reflect his love to his world. The shadow of the love of God for us should break forth from us into the city and the culture we inhabit. 
we want to see life come out of death. This is the God we know. This is what he loves. This love should shadow us, overflow us into our world. Do not commit adultery. Given the primacy of family, this should come as no surprise, but the intriguing protection here though it's obvious is not, well, intriguing to me, is not necessarily of marriages that's clearly being protected, but of sex. Can I use that word in a church? (laughs) I just did, I guess so. The marriage bed is to be kept pure. The New Testament is clear on this, that marriage is the place, the one place, where a covenant relationship between a man and a woman allows sexual activity to be proclaimed, practiced, and rejoiced in, but the gospel restriction on sex to the marriage relationship, while clear in the Bible, is often not understood well by either our city or our church. So let's note a couple things quickly for our clarity and for the city's understanding of the Christian position. Firstly, let's talk about sex. Sex is a sacred incarnating of something that most of us have not thought much about, and that is the Trinity. In the gospel, God exists in a triune relationship. There are three members of the God who who love each other, who delight in each other, who glory in each other, who exult in each other, who give to each other and delight in such an intimate, intimate, infinite, pure, powerful, potent way that when we see it, we're not going to know what to do with it. They make our deepest and most exuberant passion and intense loves pale by comparison. When you experience the love of the Trinity for each other, you're just going to be speechless. There are four different loves that philosophers and scholars have talked about in human love. Agape love, the unconditional love of compassion for those in need. Storge love, the love of something that's inherently beautiful. You just appreciate it for its beauty and goodness. Phileo love, the fierce, loyal love of friends to one another. And then eros, erotic love. It is the most pleasurable and the most passionate love we humans experience. It creates longing in us even while it is creating pleasure in us at the same time because it's meant to be a pointer to us, a signpost to a deeper, more lasting, more exuberant, vastly more intense love that we don't really understand because it exists in God. When we meet God and see the joy, the pleasure, the intimacy, the vulnerability, the visceral happiness and peace that is in their joy in each other, we will go, ah, I don't need sex because this is what sex was pointing to. Oh my word. Sex, men and women, is not only meant to build up the unity and cohesiveness as marriage, it is meant to point to the inner joy and infinite delight God has for himself, what C.S. Lewis called the dance of mutual self-giving that exists in the Trinity. Therefore, sex in many ways, is perhaps the most sacred love of all because it is the one that most closely approximates the relationship within the Trinity. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing we should talk about is the real meaning of marriage. 
And the real meaning of marriage is not just to have kids and make kids and enjoy each other and not be lonely. Ephesians 5 tells us that the real meaning of marriage is that it points to the marriage of God and humanity. Ephesians 5 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor so that he might have a bride. Christ died to forgive our sins. That's magnificent. That's foundational. We preach that every single week, but it's not final. Christ did not die simply that we might have the debt of our sin paid for, though he did that. He did not die simply that we might be forgiven, though he did and accomplished that. He died so that cleansed by his gift of his life and his death and washed clean, we might be a fit bride for him to marry. Therefore, marriage, marriage is a picture of, of the relationship between God and us. Sex is a, picture, is a pointer of the love that the Trinity has within themselves. Put those two together and hear this. You shall not commit adultery means we should be totally pro-marriage because of what it implies. We should do all we can to support marriages, but at the same time, we should be vividly, viscerally, and excitedly pro-single. Because, men and women, it was a single man who redeemed all of mankind. By his singleness, he showed us the true meaning of marriage, that human marriage only points to. Jesus needed no other marriage because he already already was part of the Godhead. He needed no sex because the thing that sex points to, to the eternal dance of delight, was already his. Singles who stay single and save themselves from sexual activity point equally and perhaps in some ways even more deeply to the ultimate reality that God invites all of us to, the marriage of him and us and the entrance of us into the sacred love he already has in himself. We should be pro-marriage, we should be pro-single, and we should be pro-purity. We should practice celibacy and purity. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, to look with lust on someone is to commit adultery in your heart. Men and women, if you're looking with lust at images on the internet or movies or whatever, stop. Get help. Get accountability. Value the purity that lies in the heart of God who saved himself that he might have no sin so that we, his bride, might be completely forgiven and get his perfect righteousness. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. I, I won't say too much here. These are pretty clear and pretty unobjectionable. 
Do not steal. Don't take what is not yours. Again, the shadow of God lurks here. God has assigned to us what we need and to others what he has assigned to them. And he calls us to be content with his sovereign assigning of things. Let's respect the goodness of his God and and not trying to take from others what God has given to them. We should take theft seriously, even as our culture is struggling to take theft seriously, diminishing the value of personal property implicit in here is that others have personal property given to them by God. Don't take it away. You want to do better in life? Earn it. Work hard. Read Proverbs. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. God is a God of truth. He wants us to imitate that truthfulness in the way we treat our neighbors. Do not steal. Do not lie. Of course there are exceptions to the do not lie. I think particularly uh, lately as uh, the issue of the Holocaust has come back to light a little bit. We just saw a movie uh, on it, the piano. And uh, there are times when we honor God by deceiving evil people. We do. But generally speaking, we're called to live lives of integrity and truthfulness. Men and women neighbors deserve to be treated as the image of God, and we need to treat them in ways that imitate the love of God. That's what we're called to do in these 10 words. Let us be a shining example of truth, integrity, and purity. Time and time again, the church has failed that. That is to our shame. Let us repent of that. At the same time that we're this shining, holy, different place, Let us be this safe place for those who are broken, who have sinned, who have made mistakes, as we all have. Katy Perry, my my family watches American Idol. I watch it with them. I kind of enjoy it. Katy Perry, of course, grew up singing worship songs and then walked away from her Christian faith because she found it incredibly legalistic. And in an interview, she broke down and said in my church, I just wish there was more room for people like me to come. Come as you are, like the song we used to sing. And that's our final point. We need to image God in our family relationships. Imitate God in the way we treat our neighbors. But finally, we need to invite God into the deepest recesses of our hearts. It says in the final one, you shall not covet. We already know that coveting, according to Paul in Colossians 3, is idolatry. It replaces God. Augustine calls it a disordered love. It means to covet for yourself that which God has assigned to another person, to covet their success, their popularity, their looks, their intelligence, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their wife, lusting after other people, whatever. Coveting, though, is really hard to regulate. It's not behavior. We can often rigidly discipline our behavior because it makes us feel better about ourselves or because we're afraid of being critiqued by culture. We can curb behavior, but in the quiet recess of our hearts where no one else knows and no restraints exist other than our own hearts and desires, there's simply you. your cravings, 
your desire to feel more whole, more beautiful, more powerful, more loved, more in control, more protected. What stops you from coveting? Only a transformed heart. That's all. See, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, we said last week is a guard to help you from wandering from God. It's a guide to help you know how to love God, but it's also a goad. It's a goad to say, you've blown it. You've got to come back to God. The Apostle Paul knew this deeply. In Romans chapter 7, he describes how he felt like he could obey all the commands of the Ten Commandments rigorously until he came to this, you shall not covet. He said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But then sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The command to not covet is God's beam of light into the dark recesses of our heart where we all covet. And that coveting, says God, is enough to make you just as guilty as if you had murdered somebody. Because coveting is desiring to play God. It is having another God. Desiring that which God your creator has not given you. It's a failure to be content in him and what he's given you. It's a failure to be compliant to the ways he has ordered the world. Coveting captures us all, makes all of us feel guilty before a loving and holy God. Men and women, we're faced with the reality of us. And God says, let me shine the light into you so you will know that at every moment, no matter how religious you are, you need me. You need your groom. You need your father. You need my grace. You see, Paul, the one who said these in a few other verses, just a little later said, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? That's what it feels like to actually face your inner heart and coveting. And this is what he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord was the one man who walked on this earth and did not covet. He did not desire anything other than what God had assigned to him. And what had God assigned to him? To leave heaven and his omnipotence and omniscience and wisdom and joy and come down and be vulnerable and be human and be rejected and be misinterpreted. Despised and rejected, hated and arrested, accused and nailed. For what reason? Because he had the love and compassion to come out of his throne, become one of us for our sake, that we might enter into the communion of him and his Father and his Spirit. Here then is the end of the law, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ, who in his life perfectly obeyed these ten words, and in his life perfectly obeyed the just judgment of these ten words upon you and me. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all 
our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us in its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Hear these 10 words of covenant commitment. Realize you failed them. Realize Jesus didn't. He fulfilled them on our behalf and now comes in grace and says, come to me and experience my grace. Be renewed in my mercy. Experience again the love of your bridegroom and come experience the love of the Trinity. Let us be a holy bride as Jesus was a holy groom and is a holy bridegroom for us. Let us be a bride filled with love and grace as Jesus our bridegroom was and is. Let us be a bride fit for the life and the joy of life in the Trinity. Let us live these 10 words and let us go to the one who lived them for us for grace in our time of need. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us to live these covenant vows as best we can and when we can't. Help us by your spirit to come back to you and experience your grace and let your spirit empower us to live them anew, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Turn this on, my apologies. Okay, we're on, great. Uh, well, at this time we have time for one question, Dan, on this passage. Um, this question here is an interesting one, um, and this one comes from someone in our congregation who says they have a friend who is a young adult and is ready to get married because they do not want to fall into sexual immorality, yet their parents forbid them from marrying as they believe they are too emotionally immature and too young. What can this individual do in the situation, the individual who has the parents who say that they're too immature or too young? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to punt as any good person who is overwhelmed by a question that stumps them and say, I'll talk to you personally. Uh, come to me, uh, email me if you would like, uh, and perhaps I can help them. That is a matter for wisdom. Uh, you're supposed to honor your parents if that person in, is above the age of maturity, and if they're trying to get married, they probably are. They can honor them and listen to them, but not ultimately required to be governed by that decision. So... Uh, I'll leave that general rule out and then get into the specifics with the person who asked it. Great question. You guys are awesome. Let's stand and respond.